With me tonight are Matt and Graham. I'm Graham. I can be easily identified by my Scottish accent. And I'm Matt. I'm easily identified by the fact I never stop talking. <laughs> so we've got a couple of questions to get through. And the theme of the podcast is going to be rules changes, why we make them, what we're trying to achieve with them. And we've thrown this open at short notice to the community. Uh, and so we'll start with... A question we've we've covered ourselves, which is who makes the rules changes? Yeah, I stuck that one in. I think it's it's useful to explain because obviously from the perspective of us three, it's really clear who makes rules <laughs> changes. But I and, and I think people who know the inner workings of the PD Empire team probably also know. But I think most people, it's probably fairly opaque. Uh, effectively, Empire the game is run by the three of us: Graham, Andy, and myself. Uh, and we are the sort of ref- the, the, the so-called triumvirate that basically makes the decisions that are the big decisions that affect the game. Um, and so we are the three people that fundamentally make the rules changes, um, talk them through, discuss them, agree them, and then implement them. And that's pretty fair, isn't it? Yeah, seems right. Reasonably so. Uh, I think, you know, we obviously talk to a lot of other people. Yeah, it's it's, it's never something that we do in a vacuum. Um, there are a number of other people who generally get consulted. Uh, Nick Taylor, notably, is um, repeatedly consulted. Um, yeah. as he is the one who actually has to action the do in the field all too frequently. We but, often have informal discussions as well. Yeah, and we'll, we'll yeah, and we'll we'll chat and discuss with lots of people on and off. But but effectively, what it comes down to is it's the three of us. That ultimately call the shots, which is why it's the three of us on this uh, this <laughs> night call, basically. So, um, the first question from the punters, John Franklin says, <laughs> "Oh, this is great. Uh, can you give examples of the bad stuff that has happened when we don't change rules that need changing? Why do we make rules changes at all?" He, that that is that. In fairness to John, that slightly passive aggressive last line was added by me. Uh, hence the quotation marks on the text that the listeners can't hear. I don't do <laughs> Can you give examples of the bad stuff that happens when people don't change rules that need changing? Um, I certainly that um, I have a really clear picture in my head of the bad thing that happens when you don't change rules that need changing, and I can give a really good example of that, and that is Maelstrom where we ended the game. (laughs) That is what happens if you don't change the rules. You stop running the game. Um, And that sounds a really dramatic thing to say, but I think everyone who runs LARP is driven by a kind of perfectionist need to produce the best LARP game they can. I've never met someone who's like, yeah, yeah, we run LARP events. It doesn't really matter if they're any good or not. We just run them for, you know, for a laugh. Everybody who, who... is passionate about LARP, everybody's running a LARP event, he's doing it to run the best possible event. If you're running an ongoing sequence of games and you don't change the rules, you don't improve things that you think can be improved, you don't fix the things you are broken, what happens is over time you get less and less happy with the game you're running and you start to think more and more about how much better a better game you could run would be. 
and the logical end point is at some point you go, I don't want to run this game anymore because it's just not as good a game as we could run. Um, so the big bad thing that happens when you don't change the rules, the, the really big kind of existential uh, thing that happens is you stop running the game. Now, the positive is you start running something else, but but if you love Empire and, and, and are enjoying this game, the actual positive takeaway from the fact that we keep improving the rules and changing the rules and updating things is that we're doing that because we're really committed to the game in the long term. Presumably what we're not saying is if, if you keep complaining about rules changes, we'll stop running Empire. No, no, we're not saying that. Um, <laughs> happily. I think, I mean, that the, there's nothing... There's no sort of obvious bad thing that happens in the game if you don't fix broken things, other than that they sort of they sit there like problems. You, you say that. Uh, I, yeah, I'm not oh, sure that's oh. true at all. Um, within the player base, certainly I saw this a bit from the maelstrom end of the players. I've seen it through system after system. Um, the player base will tend to get a sort of cynical view about rules that don't work or rules that no one likes or rules that no one follows. Um, because one of the worst things that you get is a rule that people sort of go, that's a stupid rule, and it is a stupid rule, and we don't enforce it, and our refs don't even enforce it. Um, and that's a situation that, that I always want to avoid, if that makes yeah. sense. Um, but I've seen that happen in system after system, where people just sort of go, what, what's the rule for this? Oh, I have no idea. Didn't, uh, the, uh, didn't the Maelstrom economy collapse at one point because we dragged our heels on sorting out um, Philosopher's Stone and Retainers? But you see, that, that to me is a counter-argument. I don't think it did collapse. What happened was it kept inflating, inflating and getting worse. And anybody knew it was problematic. Anybody knew it was broken. But there was no dramatic, catastrophic thing. And that's the interesting thing about when there's a problem in a rules change, it, it it's everybody's problem to a small extent and nobody's problem to a huge extent. So you don't... There's rarely actually a, a positive to you know, people don't nobody's sort of protesting and saying, oh, you've got to change this. You've got to change this. People simply tolerate the rules as they are. They're kind of used to it. They're used to playing the game. They're used to playing it with those rules. And Graham's right. You can get situations where people are like, yeah, yeah, we just ignore that rule because it's, it, it's rubbish and it's broken and, and the refs don't enforce it because everyone knows it doesn't work. But But everybody just puts up with it. Uh, and that's my point that I don't think there's ever a moment where the things break because you've you've got um, bad rules or your your rules are sort of getting worse over time. Or, or, or but but what happens is it breaks at the point where the organisers go, sod it, we've had enough of this. There's also a there's also an iterative process going on a lot. I mean, it's not as if we can take two years doing beta testing. Not quite. Um, one of the other no. things about Maelstrom, one of the one of the problems, I'm sorry to harp on at it again, I know I was not involved in the rules creation of it, um, but certainly per, particularly towards the end of it, um, a new character entering the system was very hard done by compared to a character who'd been playing for years. A character who'd been playing for years had, had access to a whole wealth of skills that that new character could not possibly start with or begin to access. And to have tried to deconstruct that at that point and try to Try to fix that problem without ending the game would have, I feel, not been possible. I, I don't disagree with you. I think, but 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 I think the difference there is that Maelstrom was always envisaged as a game with a lifespan, 
um, you know, we as the, as when we wrote the game, we, we, we didn't sit there and think we see this game running for, for, for many, many years. Uh, you know, my, my hypothesis when we created the game is it would run for a, for a decade. And after two or three or four years, I looked at it and thought, we're no closer to finishing this game than we were when we started three or four years ago. But by five, year five, year six, the problems with Eidolons, the problems with Undead, have become so endemic in the system, so problematic. And we were so aware that, that we couldn't fix those problems anymore. But if we could have fixed them, we could have had a better game. That in the end, it sapped the will to, to carry on with that game. It, it, it basically, it just became more and more clear, particularly to me and Andy, I think, that, that we could run a much better game than Maelstrom. Um, whereas I think if we'd been in an iterative process where we were constantly improving and actually make effective improvements to Maelstrom as the years went by, that would have been less likely to happen. So, should we move on? Yeah. Andrew Ruddick asks, <clears throat> what data do we use to inform rule changes? Yeah, and he's got some suggestions, hasn't he? First-hand experience, directly solicited feedback, general mumbling and grumblings. I think I'd go in reverse order and just look at those because it's kind of interesting. Um, you, you, the, the sort of general mumblings and grumblings. We, we, you get lots. I get lots of emails of feedback of people saying, "Oh, we like this about the game. We don't like that about the game." Or, you know, "Will you change this? Will you change that? We don't want this. We do want that." Um, and this could sound very rude, but but I ignore ninety nine point nine nine percent of that. Um, the, 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 the reason is it's just not a good way to assess how people feel about your game. You're basically listening to the squeaky wheel uh, and you're, you're taking your view of what players like about the game from a tiny, tiny snapshot of what people feel about it. So people sort of expressing how they feel about the game individually, either by email or on Facebook or wherever, is something we almost completely ignore. You see that. But we have, particularly when someone will compose a large amount of feedback, we have spent evenings on occasion going through that feedback and looking at it. That's not the same thing as then instantly agreeing with that feedback, but we've certainly gone through plenty of feedback from players and sort of gone, yes, no, perhaps we'll look at that. Absolutely. And I think the key here is to think about what we talk about when we look at feedback and how we respond to it. The, the really useful feedback from players is anything that gives you an insight into the factual events that are occurring on the field. Anything that tells you something. The single most useful piece of feedback I've ever had in 14 years of LARP, of LARP running was from Tom Dugan, who said, you hand out all these nice printed reports in the military council and we don't have enough light to read them by. That's a brilliant piece of feedback because it identifies something that's a problem in our game, but we had no idea it was a problem. We simply didn't know it was an issue. It didn't matter whether Tom Dugan liked it or didn't like it. What he'd given us was the ability to see what was happening in the game and be able to form our own views about whether that was what we wanted or what we didn't want. The player, the individual player's view about what they do or don't want in the game is just not something we take a lot of, spend a lot of time on or, or discuss. What we do discuss is, is this thing causing the effect we want? You know, so a good example is if, if, if a player said, 
your rules on law and order in Anvil mean that there's hardly any good fights taking place on the Anvil field. That's really, you know, it's not what I want. I've come to the event because I want to feel scared and, you know, I really want more camp attacks and I want more muggings on the paths. I want more murders behind the toilets. I want to feel in danger at the event. We would look at that feedback and we'd go, great, this game is working exactly as designed. Um, this player doesn't like it. That's unfortunate for them. But the game is doing exactly what we want it to do. It, it, so the point is that, that the feedback gives you analysis on what is happening. And we discuss that. We don't discuss how they feel about it. That, that just doesn't really inform us. It doesn't really move us. It's, it's just one person's view. It's useful to, to talk about this, I think, because I, I do occasionally worry that people think that when we don't agree with their feedback, we think they're wrong. Yeah. They, they are incorrect, whereas often... There's, there's no correct answer to, to a problem. We just make the decision about what we want at Empire. Yeah. Frequently what, what I've seen is more along the lines of the fact that PD simply ignore feedback, which isn't actually mm. true. We do look at feedback. We just That's don't. a shame, because obviously I reply oh, I, to... I've seen that quite a lot. Um, yeah, I reply to every single feedback email I've ever been sent, and I get a lot. Uh, and usually I'll give a line, not a line by line response, but I'll go through every feedback and I'll, I'll say, yes, appreciate what you feel about this. You know, here is a response. Here's why we do things like that. So, but that, you know, but, but certainly we don't listen to um, opinions about what is good and bad about the game. I, I, and I would agree with that. We, we just don't. Um, and partly, ironically, although PD and Empire is a business, at the end of the day, we're running the LARP game we want to run. There's a passion here. You know, that, 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 that you've got to feel really, really passionate about the game. It's, it's of no use whatsoever to, to, for us to go, let's run the LARP game that Luca DeRay wants us to run. He'll be really excited if we run this LARP game. It's not the LARP game we want to run, but, but he'll really enjoy it that there's just that there's no if you're passionate if, you, if your heart isn't in it if you don't feel passionate about the game you, you just won't run a good larp so there is a truism that people run the larp game they want to play yeah i think that's fairly true for empire yes yeah. um so you know you, you, you've, you've you, 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 i think you've got to have a vision of your game and and so forth uh so and feedback plays a really vital role in informing your assessment of what is happening in your game, it is a very little value for forming your judgment about whether that is good or not. You, you should already know whether the game you're running is, is, is good. Do you think the same is true of solicited and unsolicited feedback? Because we do occasionally ask people to give us feedback about specific parts of the game, don't we? we yeah, do. we often Generally, when we're asking that kind of question, why we're, why we're asking solicited questions of people in the area of the game, is because we're planning something um, all too frequently, when we want, or we're wanting to look at a certain area of the game, and there's something that we feel we'd be better served by just asking the people in question rather than rather than trying to guess it out ourselves. And sometimes it's also to try and find holes that we've not been able to find. We've asked more than a few questions where it's basically just a case of find the holes in this before we put it live find where the uh, massive amount of backlash is going to be if we do something horrible involving basket hilts. 
Um, so there's other forms of data we use. Obviously, we have a massive database. We can, you know, we can instantly assess how many people have made this magic item, how many people have taken this magic item, how many players have got unstoppable versus how many players have bought dedicate. Uh, you know, we can data mine the game very effectively. Uh, and we use a lot of, um, we, we, we do look at the feedback. And, and as Graham says, particularly if we're going to go away and work on an area of the game that we're not happy with, we'll, we'll solicit feedback. We'll send, you know, we'll, we'll ask people whose judgment value to give us their thoughts. Another another important point is that we've also got people who are running our areas, are running particular areas of the game, and who tend to be a lot closer to those areas than we are. And we'll generally speak to those people before we do anything. On yeah, most so, stuff. But say. again, I think generally the most useful stuff they give us is their assessment of what is happening, or what behaviours are happening, what players are doing, how other players are responding. You know, it, it is. Effectively, because of the scale of the game, we, we see very little of what is happening. And what the, the good feedback, out both from crew, from players, from everybody, is basically giving you a camera on their shoulder so that you can, we as the organisers, can, can actually see what is actually happening in the field rather than just what we want to happen or what we think will happen or what we hope will happen. Yeah, so, I, I, you know, I think... Um, and, and, that's, and that's basically the data we use. Picture. What do you think about, uh, thinking about social media? Yeah, I don't think it's a lot of use. Not not in terms of informing. Um, it, it, what it's really good for is at the other end of the process when you're delivering rules changes. It's really good for that. Um, it's really good for, you know, what we're doing now. We're having a po podcast where we talk about the theory, the practice, how we change rules, why we change rules, what we think about, who changes rules, what, in, you know, and players and, and crew and everyone really appreciate, in my experience, those who care about a game, a game appreciate having that insight into the thinking, the how and the what and the where and the when. Um, and that's really difficult to, to distribute that information effectively prior, you know, to the to social media. Um, but social media makes it easy and cheap and simple to give that information out, to get it out. So I think it's really useful at the point where you are delivering the, the changes back to the player base and trying to communicate why you've done them and, and so forth. But in terms of gathering data, I find it virtually useless. Um, unfortunately, most human beings will tend to focus on their views and their opinions and, and their tastes and their subjective uh, stuff. It's quite rare to, 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 to get feedback, and particularly unsolicited on social media, because people are not even thinking about that. They're just ranting about the thing that happened at the event they hated or the thing that happened at the event that they loved. And both of those are almost certainly useless. Occasionally, if they're ranting about something that happened that's terrible, you'll be able to look at what they're ranting and think, that does sound terrible. That sounds nothing like what we wanted to happen. You know, someone's ranting on Facebook saying, oh, I was just role playing in the field and a ref came up to me and said, you're dead. And that was it. I, my character was dead. You'd be like, that shouldn't have happened. And so, it, you know, it gives you a way of kind of spotting when things are happening that are simply broke. But it effectively has to be much more extreme than yeah. simple feedback for you to get that. Because it, it's not what people aren't, people aren't using it for that. They're, they're, they're frothing. They're frothing on 
on social media and, and froth is not a, a, a really a very useful source of of information it, it just isn't so it, while we're, while so, we're on communicating do we want to move on to Isika Barron's point Question. Yes, I think so. Yeah, that's a great question. Why do you publish changes? I, I can't wait to hear what the answer to this is because I know what <laughs> I think. The answer, but... No, go on, Matt. So yeah, I mean that, that, that's that is really easy to explain. So imagine that um, you've done all of your rules changes, you've done all the work, and it only took four days. It was a pretty simple, straightforward process <laughs> to change a game with fifteen hundred people. You had a quick meeting with the two other guys. You run the game. You, you know, you spend maybe 15, 20 minutes running through the rules changes, knock them out, publish them six months before the event. Bish, bosh, great. Everyone's, um, everyone's sorted just when you'd want to do it. Meanwhile, back in the real world, we've just spent the best part of four months reviewing rules, talking about them, discussing them, taking them apart, putting them back together. Um, you know, we've... Uh, we've had rules we were going to change. We've argued and argued and argued, and then we didn't change them. We've had other things where we were convinced we're going one way, we've discussed it, discussed it, and then we've realised we've gone another. Basically, it takes weeks and often months to make those rules changes. So the reality is that the process is long and slow and hard work. And unfortunately, the thing that kind of drives you and pushes you all the time is the deadlines of the events. And as you get closer and closer, you think, right, we've got to get this piece of work finished. We've got to get it done. We've got to get it published. We've got to get it out there. Otherwise, another event goes by where we don't fix this. Another year goes by where we don't fix the Synod pages. Another event where this happens. So effectively, the events drive the schedule. And in a perfect world, of course, we would put these changes out seven weeks before every event. That'd be wonderful. But... We just we, we, we are only human beings. And so we put them out when they're done. And, and inevitably, because there comes a point and the classic as well is you, you keep working at it until you're like, well, we just can't work on it now. Now we must switch to working on the event. And that point is about two, three weeks before the event. Um, so it, it, it is not it's not our choice. Nobody sits there and thinks, oh, well, we finished that. But let's. Let's keep all those changes on the shelf and not tell players till three weeks before the event. Mm. It's just not remotely how the process works. Um, it is um, it, it is it's a process where the whole schedule of what we're doing is driven. Particularly with um, changes like I've gone on this downtime where we've got things coming in like new ways of calculating things and so on and so forth. And it's involved a lot of a lot of changes to a lot of wiki pages by a lot of Andy time. And it... it yeah, it's just a, a massive job. And the other thing is, we, we you're trying to to do a whole set, a whole body of work in one go. Um, you know, we, we're doing a lot of work on rewriting the synod pages, and actually, we're making really, really tiny changes in most situations. Just, but but it's all about improving the presentation, improving the text, making it more readable, more presentable, more legible. Uh, better organized it's a but it's a big piece of work it is taking me weeks and weeks to do it um i think it's worthwhile i think like the better wiki it'd be easier for players to play the game but that is happening while we're doing the rules changes that is slowing down the rules changes we do we do try i think um sometimes better than us to do our rules changes over winter rather than in the middle of the year particularly for the larger ones last year 
with the exception of the religious skills one, but that was more a we haven't done it yet. But but the religious skills one was very much we we, we kind of we wanted to do it that winter and we just couldn't we just couldn't find the time in the six month time span we just couldn't couldn't get it done and we couldn't get it finished. But uh, yeah, without a shadow of a doubt, our generally our best we make better decisions when we've got weeks to reflect on them, consider them, go back to them. Sometimes, quite often, us will agree a rules change, and I'll say, right, we 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 put that one in the bank, we'd agreed it, but I want to come back in three weeks' time and just see if we still feel dead confident. You know, um, hand hits is an obvious example of that. Yeah, hand hits is an obvious example. I was dead keen on that rules change, but over time we just got less keen. We just you know, we, we went through that process of assessing it and reviewing it and discussing it. And and it, some of us got less keen. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. The key is what you don't want is buyer's remorse. You don't want to publish a rules change and then three weeks later think, you know what, I wish we hadn't changed that rule. So you, you want a period of time to, to just mull it over and just think, you know, yeah, I got up the next day and I still think we should do this because inevitably some of these changes happen when you're passionate, you're arguing, you're discussing, you get worked up. You go, yeah, we should do this. This will make the game better. And sometimes you've got to just step away and, and, and let all of that emotion go away and try to mull it over calmly. So Tim Baker, to get onto a specific words question, asks, what was the thinking behind the changes to Unstoppable? I, I like to ask that in a sort of, you know, more, more sort of, what was the thinking behind the <laughs> I so think he's, I, he's obviously suggested that we have a different view of what that skill is for than some of the players. Uh, yeah, I did notice that he'd asked that on the back of it. Um, and I do want to handle that bit as well as the, the actual why we changed it. Um, although, to be honest, it does lead in. Uh, the... The reasoning behind what we wanted Unstoppable to be, um, someone will stop me when I'm wrong, because much as I love the skill and was the person arguing for it, um, hey-ho. Uh, the po point that constantly came up with Unstoppable is that point at the end of Fellowship of the Ring, uh, the film, when you see Sean being shot with an arrow, get up again, being unbelievably hard, shot again, get up again, only to be finally put down. It's that sort of, I am a juggernaut of unstoppable um, power that we're looking for from the unstoppable skill. Not as, um, to, to paraphrase what Tim said in response to some responses on that thread, um, a, an extra survival tool. And, and I'd quite like to get away from being killed tool. Um, which is what we found that it was being used for in the field. And that was not not a tool that we had wanted to hand out. A sort of, I would like to get away after the battle has moved on. Does that seem fair? Yeah, I think that's totally fair. I think um, there's an interesting point here because it, it rolls into the next question we got from Gregory Carslaw about how you sort of playtest these changes. I think it's worth, it's interesting to, to look at the, the, the development with Unstoppable. We kind of... We, we could see there was an issue with Unstoppable from the data because it was overwhelmingly the most popular skill. You know, it, it was much more popular than almost any other heroic skill around it, even though it cost a similar amount of points to... What's the other one? Um, second Wind. Second Wind. Um, it, it, was a, it was a much more popular skill. Players will 
always prioritize a skill that lets them avoid being killed over a skill that lets them kill their enemies. We know that. And so we tried to play balance for that anyway in the system. But basically, Unstoppable was up for review and for discussion as part of our whole look at battles and how battles flow and how battles work. And it sounds so stupid now. Uh, I don't even know why we got to this, but we did our sort of first pass of the changes to the battle rules. And our decision with Unstoppable was to keep it exactly as it was, but to increase it to two two hero points. Instead of using one of your bank hero points, was going to use two hero points. And we kind of, that was the balancing between Graham loved this skill, I hate this skill. It's clearly a really popular, so our, our and generally there's a, I, I kind of, I'm a big believer that if you're compromising, it's probably a bad thing in LARP. If you've got design by committee, and there's a kind of, well, no one's really happy with this, but this is the sort of answer that pleases the, the most people, or displeases the, the most people the least, it's not a good sign. But, but, but You're just saying that because of nine years of Ireland. Yeah, let's not, don't swear, no swearing on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Ireland is so, not a swear word, despite what you may think. <laughs> We agreed that we, we'd go to two hero points. And then we went away to members of the battle team and we, we, we showed uh, members of the crew who ran the battles and were involved with the battles all of our changes and suggestions and ideas. And, and you know, the, the, the key person that we were discussing them with in, in this context was Andy Connell. And he liked, you know, the overwhelming majority of the changes. And then we got to Unstoppable and his opinion was it was a rubbish change. He was just like... It's just rubbish. I mean, first of all, he pointed out it's totally out of sync with all the other hero skills. Got a skill, it costs a hero point. Bish bosh, simple. Why have you made this one cost two hero points? It's just needless complexity. But his chief argument was it doesn't, the change doesn't do what you want it to do. And it certainly didn't do what he wanted to do. And, you know, he's like, it, it's, it's just a bit dull playing possum on the battlefield. You, you know, this skill is basically going play possum. You're going to get up on one hit. When you get up on one hit, Run for your life back to wherever your mates are. Don't attempt to fight the orcs. That is a death strategy. Just peg it back to where your line is in the hope that with your one hit, you will get back in time. And his point was, that's just not heroic. He bravely ran away. Brave, brave, brave Sir Robin is just not heroic. It, it's not what the heroic skill was supposed to be for. And he kind of challenged us to say, go back to the drawing board on this and come back with a concept for this rule change that does what it says on the tin that makes you unstoppable not that makes you possum you know otherwise change the name of the skill change it from you know unstoppable to play possum because that's what it is that's kind of why we ended up rolling it into second wind isn't it yes yeah, because there was a lot of stuff like the one hit an argument given at one point was that that one hit is not useful for you when you're when the line of fighting is close to you because you'll simply immediately be put back down. Um, yeah. At which point, second wind is the better skill, and that's why people were also taking that and so on we, and so forth. We we basically chewed over the you know we had a concept, we took it out to our our crew team to certain people, we got feedback on it. And we, we identified we'd made the wrong change. And then we went back to the drawing board and said, what is it we want from Unstoppable? And as Graham said, we want Boromir. We want that every heroic Hollywood movie where, the you know, every martial arts movie, every uh, boxing movie, the guy's just taken an unfeasible amount of damage. He's gone down. 
and then heroically he gets back to his feet. It's cool. That was the cool we wanted that skill to be about. And I, I think, you know, the new formulation for the rule is going to provide a much better uh, implementation for that. Obviously, it's not going to make everybody happy, though. Oh, no. Frequently, when we change the rules, there are, there's always going to be a number of people who are going to be unhappy. A better example of this would probably be one like the Shatter change. Um, the the change with Shatter to remove it from the from the heavier armored fighters and move it onto the the more lightly armored mages. Um, as much as a lot of the rest of the changes we've made, you could very much unrealistically frame them as simply changes. This one is much easier to frame as a nerf. And of course, there's going to be people who are unsatisfied with, with that change being made. But at the end of the day, we do have to weigh that up. And sometimes I'm very sorry, but you picked a you, powerful you, you option say, and we we're going to have say to... Nerf. I do right. say nerf. Um, I, I disagree. And we've had... <laughs> is, we're having this discussion again on a podcast now that we've made the rules change months ago, but Go if on, I was with a two-handed <laughs> weapon, I'd rather chop an orc in half than smash his shield. I'm pretty sure I'm not the only person. That's true for a segment of people, Andy. I, I'm, I mean, me and Graham are very clear in our minds that the change from Shatter to Impale is a nerf. I, I, I have no, I, I'm utterly unequivocal about that. And, and there's no doubt that you can make an argument for a different interpretation. But, but I don't think you gain any mileage. And clearly what you don't do is you do, you, it does nothing to address the unhappiness of the people who've just been nerfed to tell them it's not a nerf. That just makes them very unhappy indeed, um, because they feel it's a nerf. And telling them that they're wrong in how they feel about it is a, is, is is bad PR. Um, I, I, so I'm much more interested in embracing and going, yes, this is a nerf. We have changed this. This is a nerf. Um, and, and, and Graham's not wrong. You know that it is. You can't implement a nerf or a rules change like that without a bunch of people being less happy at the end of it. Yeah. Um, Interestingly, this leads into something uh, Tom Garnett has asked, which is uh, which is around why we take the effort to explain the reasoning behind a change. It's to mitigate the backlash. <laughs> it, 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 that, that's a really sort of harsh way to describe it, to mitigate the backlash. Um, I, I genuinely find, and, and obviously I've been changing rules in LARP games for... 19 years now, um, where I've been running LARP games and changing the rules. And I can still remember uh, 16 years ago when we changed the way the mana and the karma worked in Omega, the first big game I was involved in. And the bun fight was enormous, was colossal. Uh, so mitigating the backlash is a big factor. But how did we mitigate it then? We mitigated it by having an ongoing conversation with our player base about the changes, why we'd made them what they were for, what the thinking behind it was. In my experience, people are much more happy to accept changes to a state when they can understand why those changes are happening, when they can see the logic and see the reasoning, even if they don't agree with the reasoning. It fascinates me, and it is a little unfortunate. I love live role plays to bits, but sometimes they will assume that if you change a rule and you don't explain why you've changed the rule, they think you've done it for shits and giggles. They think you've just like changed that rule and given it no thought of any kind whatsoever. And you'll see that in the feedback and the comment. They'll be just be like, oh, clearly PD haven't thought about this in the slightest. About a rules change, we might have spent three months discussing, you know, 
and, and and people literally seem to think that you just ran these out on the back of the fact packet. And so when if they're unhappy about a change and they think you have paid no attention to it and no time on it, and remember they can't see the time we're spending. We see it because every evening, week after week after week, but they don't see any of that happening. They just see, here's my game, I'm enjoying my game, and then out of the blue, this guy turns up and says, oh, I'm going to completely change it with no warning. No. So if that's your process, if there's no warning, no explanation, no discussion, it, it just looks like it was it was just done like ad hoc. Uh, and that, that people get upset about that. If you spend some time discussing it, explaining it, people think, Oh, you've, you've really thought about this. You know, I don't agree with what you've done, but I can see you, you've really thought about it and you care about it and, you, and, you, and you've, you've, you've got a line of thinking and I can see why. And that makes people much more likely to accept a rules change. Um, and oh, occasionally, I mean, the, the classic example of this last year was the changes to the religion rules. Um, and we'd spent a long time working on those changes to the religion rules. We had a, a wonderful process. We wrote a whole set of changes. Um, we then sent out all those changes to a whole load of people who were playing the game, playing priests. We got a lot of feedback. We then took that back in. We reviewed the feedback. We changed some parts of the changes. You know, we, 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 we got insight into how, you know, people's views of how it would affect their game. And we, you know, we had a really good process. Then we released the changes. We had a big discussion. And the whole thing was spectacularly um, positive. Uh, we were absolutely braced for a backwash of kind of hate that we had ruined people's games. And the change seemed to be overwhelmingly popular. And on the back of that, we were so bulled up that we went and changed the Varush collection system. A change Ooh. we had spent eight months discussing <laughs> that we have been discussing with the egregore <clears throat> with the team for 18 months and we were we were just so pleased at the response to the rules change on religion we just knocked it out and went oh yeah we're updating this to the russian election system and the players went ballistic because it just looked like we'd just done this at the drop of the hat there was very little effort to explain why we'd done it. There was no, uh, there wasn't enough time to present the change and, and, and show the thinking and the working out that had gone behind it. And people were reasonably furious. Um, and we made that mistake because we'd got, you know, we, we got buoyed up by how positive everyone had received the, the religion rules change. Um, it, it, it really talking about these things really 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 helps people understand that pd are taking them seriously yeah i think it's probably worth looking at the next point of gregory carswell's how do you go about play testing mm. you know what's your what's what's the process of, of of kind of checking that you've got this right and we've really touched on a lot of that already we don't play test rules changes um play tests are useful as a one-off exercise in lrp um, you know, we did one for Maelstrom, we did one for uh, Omega, we did one for Odyssey, we did one for Empire, but they're not tremendously useful. Empire is a game played by 13, 1400 people. If you think you can reproduce that in a playtest with 30 people, you're sadly mistaken. Yeah. You can't reproduce the dynamics, you, you just can't. Um, the difference are... between one on one combat and 300 on 300 combat is like worlds apart and completely unrelated to each other yes absolutely um play tests are not are not yeah they're not viable we couldn't we we, we just we couldn't do it um 
but um, but that's not to say we don't inform our decisions. We do speak to people who do it, who, who have it in the area. We make a decision, but then we'll mull it over for a length of time and then have another meeting to confirm it, and so on and so forth. And for some of our more contentious ones, we have gone out to to a number of players in the player base to just get their feedback on it. But no, we'll we, have the, we have some fairly basic models for the changes we make in places like the Synod and the Bourse, don't we? Yeah. Yes. There's an interesting point there where he says, do you sometimes implement smaller versions or temporary versions of changes you're considering to see how it works on the field before rolling out the full version? We sort of do that a little We've bit. We've done it twice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unapologetically, we have done it twice. Yeah. Occasionally, we'll have a conjunction where it will produce some dramatic change in the, the rules of the game or the metaphysics of the world. And that is... Be- we never do it just to playtest something. That is not why we do it. But but the classic example, and this is a really good example, was the the previous spontaneous magic system. We were breaking under the strain. We were yeah. absolutely breaking under the strain. And it, it was going to cause the game to end. Let's be clear about that. You know, it was going to break Graham. Yeah, I, I, I was I was close to calling it there and just saying I don't want to do this anymore yeah. at all. <laughs> and, and to be clear, if Graham breaks, Empire breaks. You know, if Andy breaks, Empire breaks. So, you know, we, we were in a we we're in a situation of like we need to fix this. We put a conjunction in, so we knew we were going to make a radical change to to, to how spontaneous rituals were, were done how they were the players did them and, and tried them and all the rest of it we didn't know what that was but we knew it was going to be dramatic and it was going to reduce players ability to come and ask graham questions at 14 hours a day so we put in a conjunction where we simply turned them off for an entire event uh, and that was the possibility was that we were going to implement a rule change where they would never be turned back on again that would just be it it would be formulaic rituals and that would be it that was the nuclear option and we did go with a much softer option in the end we did and i think we got the balance right but but effectively not immediately <laughs> if you remember <laughs> if you remember right the first balance that we went to uh, after that was we changed them to one mana yeah and uh, one mana proved um, more than a little bit too cheap uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, I still pick myself over that mistake. And there's a good example, a fine example, where no matter how you review something, you can still make mistakes. Uh, for those, and I just it's worth reviewing that process. It's really interesting. Um, we basically brought in a rule previously for those people who haven't been playing Empire from the start or have kind of forgotten. You could basically get uh, get Graham to give you the costing and do all the, the sort of hour of work to work out whether your ritual would work for free. So players would come down, ask Graham for the information, and he would spend an hour and, and calculate the, the, the numbers for them and give them to them. And that was game-breaking. So we thought... But but a lot of players kind of sensed it was game-breaking. And so they, they kind of restricted the amount of, of doing it that they did. Not enough to make Graham's life livable, but but they, they were aware that it was... You know, if they did that too much, it would be taking the, the piss. So they didn't. Then we brought in a rule saying... Anyone can do this, but it costs one mana to do it. Now, there's a, for those who are familiar with behavioural economics, there's a classic phenomena in behavioural economics. There's a famous experiment of an Israeli kindergarten where they had a problem with parents leaving their kids late at the kindergarten. And it's a constant problem. Parents would turn up late to collect their kids. 
So they brought in a fine of, of, of X dollars. If you let a kid late, you got fined. And their theory was classic economics will fine people if they leave their kids late. That will reduce the number of people leaving the kids late. And in fact, what it did was increase the number of people leaving their kids late because suddenly everybody looked at it and went, one mana to get an hour of the rest time to tell me if this is doable or not. That's well worth my time. Putting a cost on it that wasn't high enough made people think of it in purely economic terms. Whereas previously, people had thought, well, I can't really monopolise the headrest time. Now they just thought, well, it costs some honour. At its peak, I think we got 120 in, an, in a single event. Yeah. It was again, absolutely horrifying. It's worth repeating that each one of those takes around about an hour. We've got a bit faster now, but there aren't 120 hours in an event. Um, so, yeah, so then eventually, once... And, and I knew all about that example. I, I, you know, I've read a lot of behavioural economics. I'm very familiar with that famous example. I should not have made that mistake of charging a mana. I should have spotted it needed to. We, we, we were worried that that mana was too expensive. If you yeah, we were. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there is a so it's now 10 mana. To put it in context, we increased it by literally an order of magnitude. So there's a great example where we brought in a rules change and it had exactly the opposite effect that we wanted. Instead of making people think, I'll be really careful and only ask for the exact specific spontaneous effect I need, it made people think, oh, it costs some mana, I can, I can just do anything I like. Um, and so effectively, the change we brought in got the opposite effect we wanted, but we were able to see why that happened. We were able to understand why that happened. We were able to review it, change it, and go back and do it correctly. What do you think about, I'm not going to, I'm not going to express my own opinions on this, about the in-character explanations we give for rules changes. Are they a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> I, um... Yeah, we have differences of opinion on this one. <laughs> yeah, I, I... The first time we did it, I hated it. Um, I really hated it. It just... And, and I think the interesting point is that... And this is a really fascinating element about the difference between the way an organiser thinks about a game and the way a player thinks about a game. When we bring in an IC explanation, a civil servant did it, a star did it, a conjunction did it, an eternal did it, a wizard did it, whatever. At first, there was a sort of, it felt like we were trying to pretend that that was a convincing explanation. And that felt really, that as an organiser, that feels really fake. It feels false because we know that has nothing to do with why this rules change has happened. In no way is this some sort of plot development and that a star has come and spontaneous magic has changed because of in-character story. We know that's just a complete lie. It's changed because we couldn't logistically support the old mechanism and we've got a better game, better logistical support. You know, I think the game is better, not just we couldn't support it logistically, but I think the game is better when players value their, their mana and value their ability to, to cast these spontaneous spells and think, well, I can do it, but it's expensive. Um, so I think you know, it's a better game. We've done it because we think it made a better game. It's, the IC thing is just an absolute facade. And because we know it's a facade, it feels really dishonest to us as organisers to do it. Um, and at first, when I did it, I just felt embarrassed. I felt embarrassed. I felt like, yeah, I'm going to complain that we've changed the way the conclave works because the civil service found a set of rules down the back of the sofa and realised they should have been doing it. Like, or or <laughs> it's because of the time of the emergency. Or I just felt 
I felt like I was lying to the player base and I felt ashamed to do it. But talking to the players, there are a, a, a portion of our player base that likes having an in-character explanation, not because they're in any way fooled that that is why the thing has changed, but because it just gives them a mechanism, a language to talk about pre and post the change. Instead of having to go, oh, we can't talk about that because that was changed out of character. They can just go, oh, yes, uh, magic used to be different, but a conjunction happened. So now it works like this. They don't want to talk about it, but they want to be able to, to have the conversation without the problems. And once I realized that, I became completely shameless. Now I will quite cheerfully change any part of the game and just come up with some variant of a wizard did it. And I feel no shame. I'm just none whatsoever. I'm just, no matter how unconvincing it is, I'll just be like, uh, Star did it, a conjunction did it, a civil servant did it, whatever you like, don't care. Here is your explanation as to why this rule change has happened. So I'm going to skip on to skip the next question. So no, give us your views. Come on, come on, Andy. Say what? <clears throat> I I don't know. They're fairly specific. Um, I am concerned about the fact that we run a game that has things like past life visions, and um, we've we've rarely gone a year without somebody digging up an artifact of a haunted battlefield that has been there for 500 years. And you know what? They all use the rules as they currently stand. Yeah. It's true. And that, that, that realistically, that's the one that bugs me a little bit. The rest of it I buy into. I mostly get round it these days by simply refusing to engage with it in any way, uh, particularly since you refuse to allow me to have Mark Wilkin be the reason that all the religious world changed. <laughs> I think Asher died, and so the creator was quite upset. It's quite a good, good explanation, but no, apparently not. Uh, by, anyway. by contrast, from my view of it, I view it as a... From a more mechanic, from a more mechanistic uh, viewpoint, um, I view it as an unpleasant obstacle that has to be passed after we've agreed a rules change. Um, it's sort of like, well, now how can we explain this? I see. It's like, why do we need to explain it? I see. Why do we care? It's a rule that needs to be changed, so we changed it. Move on. It's a good division of labour, though. Matt yeah. cares about. Matt has to answer the emails when people are unhappy about it, so we make him do the work. Yes, that's and that I think that's something really telling. There, we, as a three of us, spend thousands of hours discussing the rules, the changes. Occasionally, very rarely, one of us will disagree, and the other two will outvote them. But that's really rare. We generally keep discussing it till we're all at least comfortable with the changes we're making not always but 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 we, we we try for unanimity and then at the end of it i i it'll be like what's our incoming explanation and i go i'll just leave that to me a civil servant did it i'll write that bit i generally don't bother you guys with and this is the i generally raffle review my text before i put it live and graham doesn't care really? and i just like <laughs> Anything that I am shameless enough to claim is the in-character explanation for why this has happened. I, I'm, I'm still waiting to roll out the idea that a giant cosmic fish has floated through the universe and moved a star, and that's why it's happened. But I, 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 I yeah, I, I, I. You say that, but we did have a giant cosmic fish slam into Okadov. That that where you, we've got in reserve as a significant explanation for a number of changes if we need it. The red star. <laughs> There's a really interesting point there about consistency. And Andy said, look, you know, this introduces inconsistencies into the world. And this, again, is a, an interesting point where we occasionally disagree. In the real world, the real world is full of inconsistencies. Nobody can ever agree on 
the cause starting causes of the first world war or you know the the, the cause of the of the economic collapse of 2008 nobody can even agree what the facts are let alone the explanation so the fact that larp worlds larp organizers spend thousands of hours getting really anguished about the consistency of their game and it is really important and it is worthwhile but the fact you never get it perfectly consistent is less crucial than people think because we deal in the real world with the i've fact. got an character explanation anyway <laughs> go on what's that there was a major conjunction just at the start of empress britain's reign that changed all the rules right Prior to Empress Britain's reign, everything worked the way it works at whatever point in time we are that we are currently running the rules. Right, I see. So the rules have simply changed back to the way they were. They're changing back to the way they were for the entirety of recorded history, apart from a six-month period before the start of the game. Don't tell any players, though, because it's deeply unconvincing. So, uh, Ren Robson asks, what are the rules and design decisions you see as core to Empire that if you decided you didn't like, you'd rather end the game than change? I've got, I, I saw that question. I think we all agreed it's a great question, but it's a heavy question. Mm. It's not one actually we've ever spent a lot of time discussing. I've got my answer, but I'd be interested in you guys' answers if you've got thoughts on it. Graham should go first because he said least according to my metrics. Okay. Um, so I think if we ever decided that the problem is, is that I'm still in favour of these design decisions. So it's hard to see me th thinking that, that we wouldn't be in favour of these design decisions. Um, basically, I think it would be any sort of the mechanical end, be it the um, the the hit system, the the entire like basics of the combat system. If we wanted to throw away the calls, or if we wanted to um, completely move away, if we on a more political basis, if we wanted to move away from the empire model, if we wanted to say, for example, the bar, the 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 overrun the empire completely take over control and we want to start running some kind of resistance game um, even if we were to run some sort of resistance game I would still want to rewrite the rules and rewrite the game structure to try and run that um, yeah I think I think I would need to be convinced that some of the some of our basic mechanics not the not the the intricacies of what does paralyze affect but the actual basics of do we want to use calls? I would have to be convinced that that was wrong in order to want to to shoot this in the head and start again. Andy, you must have some thoughts. Um, I have a couple. I um, I'm really pleased with the fact that our game has no dodges. Um, <laughs> that when you use a skill, it when you use an ability, it does what it does is a is a key element. I wouldn't be keen to see as introduced resists. Um, I would be really sad to see bonding go. I think we've built a lot of the underpinning of the game, its metaphysics and some of its structures into it. I could cope if we got rid of it, but I think it'd be a shame. Um, I would want to kill the game stone dead if we tried to replace senators or, or cardinals with NPCs, if we wanted to go to a less making the players do all the work model. Um, I think... Uh, uh, I'd kill the. I'd put a bullet in its head if we ever introduced time travel. <laughs> yeah. That's my big ones. I think dodges and uh, and I quite like bonding. So for me, I mean, you, you've done what I would do. I I sat hard and thought. I don't think there's anything. I can't think of anything in the rules. But if I had to sum up the one thing that I think, if I decided it was wrong, would make me think, let's put a bullet in the head. It would be magistrates are NPCs. Mm. That is the single 
fundamental design decision that if I felt I had got it wrong, I would think it's time to run a new game. And the reason is because the entirety of Empire as a game flows from that one concept, magistrates or NPCs. Because what makes Empire really unique as a game is it has a really strong law and order system. It has a society, it has civil structures, it has governance. And I'm not saying other games don't have those, but that's rare in a big fest game. Most of them are fairly uh, open, loose, kind of lots of people in a field, mob rule, so forth. What makes Empire really unique for me and what, what, what is simply baked into every single part of the game is the idea that there is an extant society that players, there is, a, 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 there is an academy that teaches kids to become heroes, that there is a civil service that assesses taxation and gathers money, that, that actually there's a whole supporting apparatus and, and that it's not just... Um, it's not just kind of the chaotic anarchic, we're all in a field and there's mob law. And, and I think that whole game starts with magistrates are NPCs. And I think if you change that, you would have to start again and rebuild a new game from scratch. And, it, and I was fast, you know, I, I mulled it over the other day. I was thinking, yeah, maybe in five or 10 years, 15 years, I'll start looking at it thinking, yeah, quite fancy we're in a game that's really anarchic and they're in a field and there's no rules and there's no laws. Um, but it would not be Empire. It could, you, could, you, you just couldn't change Empire. <laughs> no, it would be Maelstrom. It would be Maelstrom, yeah, yeah. It made Nick's But that's not really a rule. It's more of a setting thing. But the setting and the rules in the end, that they, they, one flows into the other. You know, the, the two are linked. And then that brings us to, uh, to, to a question that both Lucas Palmer and Scott Anderson have asked. Uh, what what do we want to change next? I'd be fascinated to hear what either of you two have got to say. We are I, let, let's uh, you know quick um, honesty. We're, we're working on some overhaul of the synod pages. That is a work in progress. There's some changes to rituals. That's a work in progress. Uh, and we've got some changes planned for the conclave. All a work in progress. Hoping to get those done with and completed and published within the next two or three weeks. I don't regard those as rules you want to change next the implication of that question is almost what other rules are broken and what's coming <clears throat> there's some stuff around fizz reps which we've talked about that we've decided not to change for now but it's still very much on our radar yeah i i can't think of anything is my honest answer you're right that there's but but what's holding up that that thing with fizz reps is our ability to logistically support it it's not Basically, there's nothing in the rules that I think I, that basically when we go through this process over winter, we kind of fix the things we think need fixing or we improve the things we think need improving. I'm not sat here with a big list of things I want to do next. Uh, I, I will be by next winter. Once we've run the game another year, I'll have another year of data, another year of assessment, another year of analysis. Right now, I'm, I'm feeling really positive. I, I've still not given up on basket hilts. <laughs> I'm falling back on a plan involving tiny man traps. Tiny man traps. Tiny man oh traps. dear. Um, but we'll see how that works, and I don't have to bother you with it. <laughs> okay. This just in Andy has set up tiny man traps in the Empire field. Um, the I, I've not got any rules that I'm eyeing up going, yeah, I'm going to change that sometime soon. It's irking me. 
Um, I think the next thing that's sort of on my radar is trying to get um, is the support structure for the refs. Because um, we. A complaint that I see occasionally and that niggles me whenever I see it is stuff along the lines of, oh, Empire, Empire doesn't enforce against cheating or this or that and so on and so forth. Um, so we have we have discussed some ways that we're going to try and give the refs a bit better support, that they can go out and do stuff, and that we're going to crack down a bit more on, on some stuff. But yeah, no rules on the horizon. So I think that's... What is that? Is that as largely done, do you think? I think, I think we're done, yeah. I need uh, to do a call out to Sean Milligan who's promised me a pie if I mention him in the podcast. You, Fredo's only got so far, dude. Uh, yeah, I think we're done now. Let's, let's, is there, let's a, is there anything we want to hit up just before we finish up about any of the rules changes we've made recently? I'm really pleased about where we are with magical standards, if that, if that matters. Yeah, I am. Uh, the mercenary rules, unless something has happened in the last few hours that I haven't noticed. Um, I so thought we were by the fact that we spent what, a year maybe from when we first started looking at it to come around to the conclusion that they're going to stay exactly the same, but we're going to make it, we're going to tell you when you need to use them. Yeah, yeah, the, the mercenary banner thing. I thought we'd spend a lot of time discussing that tonight. It's another good example of, of something we have spent months and months and months on. It's it's uh, worth that, noting that I think I think the winter started with discussions on the mercenary banners, yeah. and we've only relatively recently properly pinned down what the rules for the things are. We, we cut them at least three times, didn't we? Yeah, yeah they, they, they have been, over the course of this winter, they've been cut, they have been completely redone, they have been made into enchantments only at one stage. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. You know what made all the difference with mercenary banners, of course? It was talking about them in a park, when we went and did street LARP design. Yeah, street LARP design did make some odds. We are waffling now. We are. We, are we, we have do very we have much five, drifted into waffling. I think we covered most of the stuff there. There's some things that we might take forward to our next podcast. I think we're talking about doing battles, aren't we, Matt? Yeah, that's our plan. Yeah, yeah. battles. Uh, economics was something that we also discussed doing at some point. Oh yeah, we're going to do one on economics. Yeah. Me. Cool. Then I think we'll not worry about what this podcast is going to be told. It'll be a nice surprise for you. Uh, when I make up my mind, it won't reference basket hills, I promise. And uh, let's leave it there.